I've heard you variously described, some simply as theologian, um, others as theological ethicist, mm -hmm. others still as ethicist. How do you understand um, the work that you do? Well, the title I like best is Moral Theologian. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, these are conventional designations and mean slightly, uh, you know, may have varied overtones in different places. Um, I see the task of ethics as being one that belongs properly uh, to theology and needs to be done in a theological way. I like to think of myself as a, um, as a, a, an ethicist who takes the theological context extremely seriously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it was only, um, I'm aware of the dissenting history of the separation of ethics from theology mm -hmm. um, as being back at the time of, I was told by my, um, my uh, theological mentor that it was the time of the dissenting academies and that the mm. one in Taunton and Somerset was where ethics were first taught as a separate subject away from theology and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. he used to bemoan the fact that they became separated. Yes. Um, is that yes. something that is, it is very, The history is very interesting and I think still needs, we still need a definitive account of this. My impression is that somewhere around the year 1700 is quite important in the European context um, for the separation of theology and ethics. It's post-Reformation, in other words. It's not a Reformation phenomenon. It develops in that era that's loosely designated Enlightenment, for lack of a better name. Um, you begin to get philosophically-based courses on ethics taught in higher schools and then in universities. Um, and Scotland was obviously a major contributor with its moral philosophy of the 18th century, its distinctive uh, moral philosophy. Um, in the North American continent, I think the separation was never probably quite as total uh, as it tended to be in Europe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Would you describe the work that you do as a calling? Well, I was going to say yes to uh, call, and then thought perhaps mission mm -hmm. is a better word. Um, uh, all Christians have callings. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a very important theological principle. Um, this is a work that I've been given to do, um, and have sustained with different emphases, but with, I think, a constant sense that this is the work that the Holy Spirit has given me to do during my life, yes, um, and that there is a task to which I would, an aspect of the gospel that has to be repeated to our generation and made available to our generation. Um, I think that's a mission. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Indeed, it is. Yeah. And were you raised in the faith? Did you did you have a conversion experience? Um, how how would you describe your um, your faith background? My my story is rather different. I came from a, a family background with little active um, religious commitment or belief, and um, by providential means found my way uh, to where the gospel was preached and believed um, as a child and was then um, brought up, as it were, not in the home, but in the mm -hmm. church mm -hmm. um, more. Um, 
finding my way into theology was a slower matter mm -hmm. um, and involved some initial conscientious worries which in time were taken away from me. Mm -hmm. A wrestling process. A wrestling process, <laughs> yes. I think sounds like. I wonder um, if you have any advice for emerging scholars or for pastors uh, on maintaining productivity with depth. Uh, I was struck by something, uh, Professor Donovan, that you wrote in uh, Studies in Christian Ethics in 2012. I think it was in preparation for Self, World, and Time. Mm. And um, you said this, I'm just going to read this. Gaining mastery of a topic is a prerequisite for saying anything useful about it. The demand for all-purpose pundits can easily trap the moralist into ignorant garrulousness, which is anything but a service of the common good. Um, you then say that it needs to be correlated with a personal quest for moral wisdom. Quote, unless we're drawn to a topic as much by the allure of what we do not yet understand as by the urge to expand what we do not understand, and here's my favorite part, the stench of stale punditry will hang about our pronouncements. <laughs> now, I know that um, when I was in London and now um, as director of the McRae Center, it, there can be a temptation to proclaim on every issue that emerges. Mm -hmm. And there can be almost a demand to mm -hmm. proclaim on every issue that yes. emerges. I think for pastors, there's almost a demand to proclaim yes. on every issue that emerges. So what is your advice for helping uh, scholars and pastors to be able mm -hmm. to make decisions on, on what needs to be addressed and what doesn't? and how they can have that discipline of providing the depth that their people require. Yes, that's important, isn't it? Um, you have to find your issue, the one that is given to you to teach on, um, and you have to live with it and get into it more and more deeply. You don't, as it were, establish your position in half an hour of preparation. You go back and you go back and you go back and it lives with you and it demands more of you and you think more about it. Um, and that is how the roots go down. And you search the scriptures because you, you, you need to, uh, you have intuitions. Um, an intuition is a very good starting point. I feel very strongly about this, and I have an idea, and I want to share that idea. But then you have to put it to the test of constant scripture reading and asking, how, how would St. Paul approach this question um, and correct and enrich and enlarge that initial intuition? You just can't repackage it <laughs> and constantly deliver the same old intuition that dies. It's only a moment, it's a moment of coming alive to a question which you then have to work at. And there are many things that will trouble one in which one feels somebody ought to be saying something about this. Mm -hmm. um, in which you nevertheless have to come to the conclusion, but I think that is not me. I do not have what it takes, I do not have the grounding in this or that that's necessary. I found that, for example, about um, bioethics. I wrote a, a very short book on common, on common bioethical questions quite early in my career, and then made a resolution 
that I wasn't going to do any more bioethics. And that was not a decision <coughs> about its importance. Uh, I've always been keen to encourage people who feel that they have uh, a mission in that area. Um, but it, it became apparent to me that the condition for being useful in bioethics was keeping constantly up to date with medical literature and biological literature. And I wasn't going to be able to do that and do the other things that I needed to do. So I just drew the curtain down on that one for myself. I mean, the proliferation of information in the contemporary world makes this even more essential. It makes it essential that we know what we're talking about. There is a certain sort of courage to dare beyond a horizon, beyond an accepted horizon, and I'm not discouraging that. I think that's also part of a service of faith. But you also need to know what it is that you don't know mm -hmm. and might have to know. And is there a sense then in which whatever pronouncement it is or whatever our conclusion at that point that it's by necessity tentative always? Is there a place for confidence or certainty or is that seeking too much? No, there is a place for certainty in the broad approach. It seems to me that we can be confident of the approach of faith to certain questions, while at the same time acknowledging that there is a great deal more to do. Um, uh, you don't have to have every detail in place to have a gospel certainty on something. I wonder how you respond to those who uh, engage your work in all sorts of different ways. Some of your work has, has been um, explored to great depth by um, a number of scholars and so on, and, I, and I'm thinking about some of those who are very popular at the moment amongst younger theologians uh, in seminaries. I speak of our seminary. And I think of someone like Jamie Smith who's having an increasing uh, influence and how he is increasingly vocal about your influence in particular on his, uh, on his work. And, and I'm just curious how you respond to that, how you reflect on that. Um, I suppose my fundamental conviction is that I don't own my own work. Um, God gives you a task to do. You do it to the best of your ability. Um, you're always aware that it could have been done better, but probably not by you. Um, the time has come when it's your duty to lay down the work and make it available, uh, to offer it to a publisher, to put it in the public realm. And then it has to be God's business what work it does, um, because it's no longer yours to control. And when I hear people reflecting on my work and responding to my work, I'm, I'm grateful. Um, I often, it often seems a little bit like listening to them reflecting on somebody else's work. Um, the, I don't think I'm in a position always to say they're wrong or they're right, um, just like that. <laughs> I don't think that's my position. I may say, no, I don't think that was the train of thought that I had. I haven't quite got that right. but. Perhaps something has been found there that needs to be taken mm -hmm. further. Mm -hmm. um, other people wouldn't be other people unless they read your work 
slightly differently from the way you've read it. Um, some new contribution is already being made. Some further individual gift is being explored. And, well, I suppose I feel relaxed about that. I'm happy that this should be possible where it's possible. And um, uh, glad to know that it's happening. But don't think it's my duty somehow to manage or respond or react, but just to listen and perhaps learn a little, mm -hmm. as one would on any other topic. Mm -hmm. I wonder in some ways if it's like those sermons where you preach and then at the door people say, mm. I loved it when you said, and you think, yes. did, I, did I say that? <laughs> yes, yes, um, yes. And, and no, and the answer is no, you probably didn't, but you should have done. Right. Uh, right. Exactly. <laughs> or perhaps Take if down. you shouldn't have done it, the other person should have said it. Right. Um, i.e. there's a train of thought going through the community here mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you have been given this link in it yeah. and the Holy Spirit verifies it by giving somebody else some way of attaching and carrying forward uh, a vision from that. Mm -hmm. That's important. Mm -hmm. And uh, so one is often grateful of these strange echoes that come back. Mm, yeah. Excellent. Um, I will ask one more. A mainstay of my work has been exploring just the interface between uh, theology or faith, church and culture and um, I don't think there's a, a one way of looking at it. It's, a, it's an ongoing dynamic, but I'm always interested to hear in your reflections um, how you understand and what you understand of that dynamic. Um, and, and I know that could be an all-day discussion. <laughs> I'm often rather nervous about analogies with the Incarnation, which is an event that has no analogies, strictly speaking, but um, we can learn from, as it were, the cultural presence of the Son of God in Jesus of Nazareth. We can see how, in taking on human nature, Jesus occupies a human cultural space, teaches within a human cultural environment, speaks to a human cultural tradition out of that tradition, and at the same time transcends it and has something to say that authoritative, that calls it to account and to reflect on itself in a completely new way. Um, uh, if one thinks of Jesus' parables in that light, for example, it seems to me uh, quite illuminating as a general kind of paradigm of what we have to do with culture and cultural forms and cultural communications. Um, so uh, I'm sure you're right uh, to say every opportunity for a conversation in a culture that has somehow developed in highly specialized, closed-off ways in a way that previous cultures haven't um, is both uh, a cultural openness and a way of exercising a certain cultural corrective force warning the, the academic culture particularly against the walls it builds up the whole time around little enterprises.